Welcome to the South Bank Centre podcast, where some of the biggest and most influential names in modern literature, art, music and performance share their stories, thoughts and ideas. In this podcast, we'll bring you a talk from this year's Being a Man Festival by Booker Prize-winning author Alan Hollinghurst, talking about his long-awaited sixth novel, The Sparsholt Affair, which looks at how attitudes have changed towards gay men from the 1940s to the present day. For more podcasts and videos from this year's festival, go to southbankcentre.co.uk forward slash BAM and join the conversation on Twitter with hashtag beingamanfest. Ladies and gentlemen, there are some writers who seem to operate in a different world to the rest of us, who can do in the space of one or two sentences what it takes others a whole novel to achieve. Alan Hollinghurst is, I think, our greatest living novelist, the author of the Man Booker winning Line of Beauty, the author of the robbed for the man booker last time strangers child the author of next year's man booker winning novel (laughs) the spartial affair um which is just a wonderful immersive sumptuous book and i'm delighted to be able to talk to him about it and about his extraordinary career could you please join me in welcoming alan hollinghurst Alan, in a, an interview in The Guardian in 2011, you spoke about the way, and I think this is the same for all of your books, you spoke about the way that your next novel had already suggested itself to you, and it concerned a group of characters who were mainly heterosexual. Um, <laughs> could you talk to us a little bit about how this novel came out what, of those early glimmerings? What, what on earth happened to that idea? Yeah. Yes, I think he, he may have sort of mistranscribed it. Or, <laughs> or, but, um, yes, there are some heterosexual characters. Um, yeah, but I agree that it, it mainly inhabits a sort of gay, or a series of gay milieu over a period of about 70 years. I think I was probably getting more and more interested in sort of sexual ambivalence and bisexuality, and which is certainly a, a theme of my previous book, The Strangest Child, as it is of, of this one, which turns on a, a scandal which is clearly partly sexual, involving a, an apparently heterosexual man in some evidently homosexual goings-on. I felt less and less interested in sort of defining sexuality and more interested in exploring it. It's a book about absences, not only the interstices between the chapters, it, 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 like The Strangest Child, moves forward in time in in these great leaps between chapters. It's also about the absence of the protagonist, who isn't really a protagonist, because he's barely there. The Sparsholt of the Sparsholt Affair is both absent largely from the narrative, but also a kind of absence in he's described as a cultureless blank. How do you think about writing a novel where, firstly, a lot of the action takes place off stage, and it's really the repercussions that seem to interest you? The first section of the novel is set in Oxford in the autumn of 1940. A group of rather excitable and very sort of literate and cultured undergraduates observe this sort of physically spectacular 
young young man, and they project immediately, sort of project onto him their own sort of needs and, and fantasies. I mean, that's one of the reasons he's a blank. I think he's a sort of screen. As you say, there are, there are a lot of absences, one of which is the exact nature of what the, the scandal he's later going to get involved and in And so can I just interrupt? Because one of the things I was uncertain about, and I was very careful when I was reviewing the book, not to give away what the Sparsholt affair was, yes. and and yet it seems that no one else has been very careful about that. So, um, <laughs> um, I feel like there's a really powerful moment when you start feeling the repercussions of what yes. happened, and I felt like it was sort of taken away from people. Has that changed as you've talked about the book and realised that everyone does know what's going on? Well, or do they? Yes. I mean, I'm not even sure I quite know what was going on myself. <laughs> exactly. uh, I was interested in, you know, observing this, the very strange conditions in Oxford in 1940. Mm. Where most undergraduates only went, went up for one year. They did a short degree, knowing that they were then going to be called up into military service. Very strange tensions and anxieties, sort of dread about the future. And David Sparsholt, this young man, is someone who's got a very, very clear plan of what he's going to do. And he, um, I mean, he is an extremely sort of hyper-masculine figure in a way. He's going to do only a term. Um, he's going to join the RAF. He's going to have a good war. He's going to come back to Oxford after the war. He's going to set up a company and it's going to be very successful. He represents some sort of tremendous unstoppable force surrounded by these rather sort of vacillating and more sen sensitive cultured figures. What I'm interested in is, is his effect, and then on you know, the effect of him when he's very young, and despite all his merits, is someone we see liable with the potential to get into quite a serious fix. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And then to see what the effects of the serious fix are, not on him, but on another Sparshot, which is his his son Johnny, who I think really is the protagonist. He is the, of the he's book. the hero. And, of I, the and book. I think I hope the the, the title of the Sparshot affair mutates in meaning as the book Yes, it's not just, the, it's the affairs of Johnny as, yeah. as well. In the very first chapter, this whole first section is written up 30 or more years later by one of the people present, Freddie Green, and the meeting has been in of a little literary society at the beginning of term has been in his rooms and it's looking through the window of his room at the, an, another illuminated window across the quad where they see the sort of stripped out David Sparshot doing his calisthenics. Freddie's two friends, Peter Coyle, a painter, and Everett Dax, who's going to become a writer and art historian, are both very excited about this, this young man. And Freddie, under the guise of, of a purely sort of scientific interest in the impact of this young man, decides to sort of try and find out something about him. He discovers that his initials are DD. Waking up the next morning and looking out of the window, he sees him crossing the quad in his dressing gown going to a bathroom which Freddie doesn't normally use. I generally avoided the big subterranean bathroom in the next quad, with its rows of wash basins and maze of cubicles, no locks on the doors. I remembered the uneasy sensation there of being naked and alone in my steam-filled partition, knowing others were lying almost silently around me. Sometimes someone would ask who was there, and a conversation would start, as if on the telephone, and slightly constrained by the presence of the rest of us, closed more silently still in our own cubicles. When I first came up, I'd been told by my half-brother Gerald that it was the best place in college for a long soak, by which I suspect he meant something more. 
It was taken over at certain times by the muddied and bloodied rugby team, the exhausted rowers who recovered and stretched in tender self-inspection among densities of steam, a great naked mixing and gathering. They threatened no danger. I went quite unnoticed there, but I knew I was out of my element. There's something of a weed, Freddie. <laughs> when I came in, when I came in, Sparsholt had just started shaving and glanced at me with a second's curiosity in the mirror. I confess I felt a jolt of excitement at being in his presence. He was wearing nothing but his pyjama bottoms and his walking shoes, the laces undone. Now I saw his muscular upper body close to, revealed with casual pride. I hung up my coat and hat and went to the basin to along. Good morning, I said. He turned his head, razor raised, and said, Morning, more cheerfully than I'd expected. I could tell he was glad to be spoken to. There was a splosh or two from a nearby cubicle, but the cavernous room had a desolate air. He took a stripe of lather off his jaw, and then another, and while I drew hot water, I watched discreetly as his face emerged. I felt I hardly knew what it would look like. I haven't seen you before, he said, again more in welcome than suspicion, looking across and smiling for a moment. His good, strong teeth showed yellow in the square of white foam round his mouth. Oh, I'm Freddie Green, I said. He set down his razor on the edge of the basin and reached out a hand. David Sparsholt. Sparsholt, I said, absorbing the David, to me the most guileless and straightforward of all the Ds. I saw that he was very young under the pale armour of his muscles. His wrist was streaked with wet hairs, but his chest and stomach were quite smooth. It's an unusual name. He blinked as if sensing criticism. Well, we're from Warwickshire, he said, and there was a mild regional colouring I would never have been skilled enough to place. I didn't press him further, and in a minute he splashed fresh water over his face and dried himself roughly. As I began to shave, I peeped across in a friendly way. He pushed his head to left and right as he inspected his jaw in the mirror with the business-like vanity I had rather expected. He seemed pleased enough with what he saw. Was he good-looking? I hardly knew. To me, a man is good-looking if he is well-dressed, and since Sparsholt was hardly dressed at all, I was rather at a loss. <laughs> it was a broad face with a slightly curved nose and blue-grey eyes set deep under a strong brow. His hair was clipped short above the ears, short but dark and curly on top. It was his physique, of course, that was more remarkable, and I could see why Peter would want him as a model. Quite what Everett hoped to do with him, I didn't try to imagine. Which force are you signed up with, he said. I explained to him about my condition and my permanent exemption from military service, and as I did so, I saw a first puzzlement in his eyes. That's bad luck, he said but the condolence hid a murmur of mistrust. He looked narrowly at me in my vest, and then perhaps took pity on me. He seemed to play, like other physically powerful men I've known, with a small, barely conscious instinct to threaten, as well as to reassure and even to protect. What will you do? Well, I'm doing the third year, history, you know, a full degree, then we'll see. Which service are you? He had his towel round his neck again now, his hands on his hips, feet apart. There was a careless glimpse of his sex in the open slit of his pyjamas. Royal Air Force, he said. Yes, I'll be learning to fly. His narrow smile was again slightly challenging. Wonderful, I said, and sensing some further approval was due, 
I can see you do a lot of exercise, not liking to say I'd watched him at it, and thinking even so I sounded rather eager, but he smiled acceptingly. Well, you've got to be ready, haven't you, he said. It was clear that the morbid uncertainty about the future that permeated most of our lives throughout these years had no effect on him. He was looking forward to it. I'm 18 in January. I'll be signing up then. And he went through his plan for me in the way that a person nagged by anxiety will, though in his case I saw only the purposeful alertness of the born soldier. I said I was surprised he'd bothered to come up to Oxford for just one term, but he'd got in, and after the war he would come back. He had that planned, too. He would get a degree, and then he would go home again and set up a firm, an engineering business. Well, they'll always be in demand, he said. The door of the occupied cubicle opened, and Das, the one Indian man in college, came out, wrapped in a towel and holding his glasses, which he was quickly wiping clean with a discarded sock. He looked at the kind of baffled keenness at Sparsholt, who had evidently encountered him before, and who took the opportunity to pull on his dressing gown and leave. I hope I'll bump into you again, I said, as I heard the thump of the door. Das, who had now got his glasses back on, looked almost accusingly at me. Is that young gentleman your friend, Green? He said. Hmm, I said, but testing the new possibility and my feelings about it. He was like a Greek god. Oh, do you think? But arrogant, very much so. I rinsed my razor under the tap. I rather imagine the Greek gods were too, I said. <laughs> I began to see that Sparshalt's effect might be larger than I'd thought. Lovely. And another classic Hollinghurst set piece there. It's, um, uh, that's just wonderful. The novel pivots around the fulcrum of 1967 and, and the decriminalisation of, of homosexuality. And yet within it, one does sense a kind of nostalgia for the past. Obviously, things are better for homosexuals living in an age of where they can't be sent to prison for what they're doing. But Johnny, at the end of the novel, seems almost baffled by the availability of it all. Yes. Is, is there some sense that when you go back through time, you quite like the nooks and crannies that oh, one like had to retreat to? Yeah. <laughs> um, I've thought a lot about and written a lot about and written sort of critical things about the earlier periods of, of gay writing. And, and I think certainly for someone of my temperament, those earlier periods when gay life was was a matter of sort of codes and induction into sort of secret things and and it had this sort of this very distinct and it was something very, very different and outlawed indeed. You know, one of the things that I've enjoyed doing in this book and the previous one, actually perhaps I've been doing it in a way all along, is never writing centrally about these big social changes, but they're they're always been going on in the mm. background. Mm. I mean, what interests me is how, how they're reflected in the sort of intimate lives of my main characters. You obviously wrote deeply and movingly about the AIDS epidemic in Line of Beauty, and yet it all is almost absent from the following two books. And I wonder whether that was conscious. I mean, one, again, one hopes everything is conscious. Also, whether you felt that this was something that you had covered, whether there was a kind of availability of profundity surrounding the subject that you didn't want to draw upon in a kind of easy or, or tawdry way. I mean, I always thought it was a very difficult subject, and I, I was 
I deliberately didn't write about it whilst it was all going on, partly just out of stubbornness because I felt there was a kind of expectation that I, mm. I mm. would, having sort of shown my hand as a, as a gay writer with my first book. But mainly just for sort of artistic, I didn't see a satisfactory way of, of doing it. You know, and there was quite a lot of fiction which was generated directly out of the crisis of sort of varying quality. And I think it just seemed too problematic for me. Um, besides which, you know, I've never sort of set out to write things addressing a particular theme, I don't think. The stories that I, I write come to me in some mysterious way and they slowly accumulate over a period of years, actually. Uh, and I sort of end up with something which I seem to be writing. I never start out thinking, oh, I'm going to write a book about, as it might be in this case, AIDS. And I think it was only when I came to write The Line of Beauty, which I suppose I started in about 2000 or something, that I could then look back on that period of the 80s and see it as part of a larger social picture of that decade. One of the wonderful things your writing does is to enchant houses, squares, neighbourhoods in London. You live in London. I, I wondered how you had seen the city change. I mean, it feels to me like it has changed Maybe it always feels like it's changed particularly profoundly in the last 10 years, but it doesn't feel like the same city I first came to when I left university. Yeah. I wondered how you felt, whether you still felt at home in London. Yeah, I mean, I love London, and, and I don't feel I want to live anywhere else, but I love it less because of what, what's been happening. I mean, the, the, old, the sort of social violence that seems to be doing, being done to London by money. I mean, it's always money, of course. I and mean, it's the second big sort of convulsion that I've lived through. I mean, coming to live in London in 1981, I lived through that, the amazing convulsion of the of the sort of the, the Thatcher boom years, which manifested themselves in the most dramatic sort of physical way. You know. The city of London itself underwent the, the most massive rebuilding it had had since after the Great Fire. You know. And there's just a sense of, of money driving absolutely everything. So, yeah, I, I don't feel so at home in it, in a sense. Um, but there's enough of it for me not to feel completely alienated from it. One of the criticisms that has been levelled at your work is that it concerns itself almost exclusively with a particular particular upper-middle-class and upper-class media. It's usually a middle-class character looking upwards. Now, I, I think Leo in Line of Beauty is quite a response to that. But how do you respond to that Accusation. It is an accusation, is it? Um, uh, well, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> well, I think one... Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, I'm not, I mean, I'm not sure it is quite true. Yes, the, 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 the central consciousnesses of all my books after the first one. And the first one I deliberately sort of did this perverse thing of having the, the, the story entirely narrated by two aristocrats. Mm. Um, <laughs> and I... I I've always, I think I've always been, been wary of, of the sort of well-meaning. You know, and I thought it would be much more interesting to tell a story about sort of social and racial exploitation from the point of view of the intelligent, but in many ways oblivious sort of exploiter. Yeah, yeah. Um, and similarly, in the line of beauty, you know, one, one could have written a direct, a direct sort of satirical assault on the, this world of high Toryism in the, the mid-'80s. But I thought it would be much more rewarding you know, as a novelist to enter that world through the eyes of this relatively humble middle middle class person who's very glamorized by it, and to let it sort of implode around eventually, sort of ironically. I think I enjoy the, the sort of scope that rich people have for sort of misbehavior and the comedy of 
thoughtlessness and bad behaviour. And I think readers will feel that it contains a, an element of social critique. You know, it's not a sort of Downton Abbey type. Sort of, uh, <laughs> That's I mean, the it, next book. I mean, in, in, um, in The Stranger's Child, the, uh, the, sort of the middle-class Daphne is sort of glamorised by, by the mm. world of, of, of this aristocratic family and indeed finds herself becoming a part of it, but it, it has its own rather sort of violent mechanisms which quite soon expel her. Yeah. Yeah. I think we might turn over to questions from the audience. Who would like to be first? Um, I read Line of Beauty when I moved to London in 2006 and I really enjoyed the story of the 80s in London. stuff. What do you think of the main characters, how they would deal with London today with a similar sort of their Toryism, money, etc.? The sort of Toryism of the 80s in, in its pomp was a, was a distinct kind of social, cultural thing. I think it is, things are different and the Tories could hardly be said to be in their pomp at the moment. <laughs> uh, I think um, some of the naivety of, of that sort of period, the sort of brazen straight, I don't know, perhaps it, perhaps it hasn't changed, perhaps it's just got worse in, in some respects. I mean, they are very particular, you know, Nick, the protagonist of that book, is a very particular sort of person who is unlike Johnny in this book, who is sort of virtually illiterate. And, I mean, he's dyslexic and he, he can't read, so he he's a looker and he observes. But most of my other protagonists tend to be quite literary and, and young Nick sort of comes at life, sees life through this kind of scrim of Henry James, whom he's sort of studying and, and immersed in. I think I tend to create character, main characters who do live to quite a large extent in the world of their own sort of fantasies and preoccupations and if they were in the contemporary world, they, w- they would be reacting to it in similarly personal and slightly quirky ways. I mean, I do think my main characters are often rather odd people, you know. They're, they're, they're not kind of ev- everyman types. Hi there. Um, uh, yeah, thank you also for the reading and for your talk today as well. I just wanted to ask a question further to what you were saying about the first four novels being a, a sort of a maybe unofficial kind of cycle and then the new novels doing something a bit different with structure and so on. Because it strikes me that the last two novels go back in history to a period that would have been before, well before you were born yes. and before many of your readers were born as well. Whereas the first four novels, that wouldn't have been the case really. They were set in the very, very recent history. Um, so I wanted to ask you, what is the particular challenge of writing about periods from before you were born? How does that feel different to writing about periods that you were alive during? It's an interesting question. I mean, there was... I hadn't quite realised until I'd done it the similarity of my first book, Swing Bull Library, where the present-day narrative is interspersed with these extracts from the journals of the, of the much older man. So you, you do sort of drop in on these moments of... You know, they're not moments in gay history, but they're moments in the history of a particular gay man in, um, sort of in the earlier part of the 20th century, um, and one to whom some particularly... T- bad sort of homophobic thing is going to happen. But otherwise, you're right. I mean, the books were all more or less contemporary in their settings. I mean, they were strictly contemporary when I started writing them, but they took so long to write that they were actually a little bit out of date by the time (laughs) I I finished them. Um, I thought when I was writing The Strangest Child that the the earlier parts would be more, before before my own time, would, would be harder to write. But actually, they were the easiest parts to write. Rather fascinatingly. When I came to the 1967 section of that book, which was when I was 
13 and you know, a period which I remember quite vividly, there was suddenly su such a superabundance of possible things that I could say and all my own memories and complicated sense of, of, the, of the time. Uh, the, the whole business of selection became much harder. It seemed to me easier to sort of construct a narrative in, in the earlier periods. It's a question of how far back one could go, you know. I mean, the, the first part of The Strangest Child is set in 1913, and to me that's just about the, the limit, I think. But there's a sufficient continuity of mentality and behaviour um, from that period through to now, and I feel I understand it. And I, I suppose partly through being quite immersed in other writings, you know, the fiction and letters and diaries and things of, of that period, I, sort of, I feel I understand how... Henry James has a wonderful who was very mistrustful of the historical novel. That's a wonderful phrase of the visitable past, the place that you can go back to with sort of confidence of knowing your way around in it. And, and that, to me, was... As, I, mean, I think if I was to write something set in 1880 or something, it would be very different, and it would be a matter of research, and which I'm always rather lazy about doing. Um, it is a distinct experience, but it, I think it's one somehow continuous with writing about things I did actually experience. I just wanted to talk a bit more about the dynamic of class and sexual identity and the challenges of reconciling class and uh, sexuality. Being a, a fairly working class boy from South Wales, the only um, kind of gay men I saw often were highly literate middle class gay men. Um, and when I you saw, do you mean saw them in public life? Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, and I found that as a challenge because I didn't see many people who look and sounded like me, who felt like me. Mm. And the book as well, I, I, I really enjoyed, especially people like Leo, and I, I felt I could see more into um, myself in those novels. So I just wanted to talk about how, how you feel boys and men from across social strata reconcile those class and sexual identities um, and how you've sought to discuss those in, especially in your earlier pieces of work as well. It's something which struck me from very early on that it was one of the fascinating, beautiful things about, about gay life that actually it enabled people to communicate in this very intimate way across barriers of yeah. class, you know. But that also that this, and I think this was something that I was trying to think about in the swimming pool library when I first book that nonetheless this was something which was sort of susceptible to kind of exploitation and didn't necessarily entail um, mutual understanding or um, that, that people could whilst having a bit of fun with someone from a, a different different class could nonetheless remain very firmly within their own sort of class assumptions you know. I'm aware too of the the whole danger when talking about gay life in general of talking about a sort of metropolitan experience and a metropolitan British experience you know, which is now a very sort of favoured one um, but you know, having come, come from outside London myself, being a, a Gloucestershire lad, I'm a, a, of course aware of that journey that a lot of people make, I mean I don't know where you first went to be in sort of gay places but there often are not many of them and I remember when I was sort of an undergraduate getting hold of a copy of Gay Times, which said that the back bar of the Black Horse in Sirencester was sort of gay on Saturday lunchtime. So, uh, I, I, I was going to do some shopping for my mother or something, sort of popping in. But, uh, but the, the, was it everything the, you dreamed it would the, be? It seemed to be absolutely no, look, looking very doubtfully at the other people. <laughs> Farm, farmers and so on assembled in the bar that feeling that probably, probably was, wasn't the case. But that narrative of um, 
you know, coming from the provinces to to a big city um, in order to you know to lose yourself because of the anonymity that you this welcome wonderful an- anonymity you have in a place where no one knows you, and also to kind of find yourself because I think a repeated thing in in the books actually and it's and it's certainly sort of what Johnny does in in this this new book you know, it comes down from. Nuneaton. I don't know what the scene's like in Nuneaton, so I should <laughs> sort of slag it up. Um, to, to London. And he finds, I think it's, it's also sort of a, a social thing about not only class, but as it were, family, you know, to what extent it was felt, felt possible in the past, anyway, to, to live as a sort of openly gay man within a conventional family. You know, and it, it wasn't always at all easy. And it might actually have been easy, easier if people had been able to talk about it, so often they couldn't. Um, so they could you, could you talk and, about it with your own parents? How was your no, own? No, not. I mean, we didn't talk about it very much. It wasn't problematic, actually, but it, it wasn't... You know, they could hardly ignore it when I was... <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I brought... It would take a willfulness <laughs> to... And I brought, you know, boyfriends home to stay. And, so, and it was all... But it, it wasn't a subject of conversation, particularly. It was just... There's a, t- a tendency, and it's something which I sort of elaborated in this this new novel of a gay person going and finding a sort of alternative family, and perhaps an alternative sort of gay father figure. Johnny in this book, when he comes to London, fall, falls in with this this sort of w- world of people who are actually from you know, for the generation of his own father. Um, and of course, I, he, Johnny speaks to his father after this event, and you think there could be some. You know, there could be some great closeness that forms, and yet it's quite the opposite. Yes, I'm afraid after his sort of exposure, um, Sparshall Senior sort of retrenches himself ever deeper in this sort of rather stereotypical masculinity, and he doesn't... uh, So he can't respond to the initiatives of his disconcertingly sort of out gay son. He can't uh, embrace these sort of... Freedoms he can't embrace him. You know. mm. He pointedly mm. can't embrace his his own son. So it's very sort of, it's very sad, really. I think. Um, I wanted to, you know, you famously discovered ecstasy at the age of forty, um, and how I wish we'd been friends then. Um, <laughs> and nightclubbing and nightclubs feature heavily in in your work. There is a great nightclub scene in this novel, and I wonder if maybe to finish off with, you might read from. That's actually yes. I mean, there are actually two nightclub scenes in this book. One is set in 1967, and the other set in 2013. The, the 2013 one, perhaps slightly inferior. We'll save, we'll save that. <laughs> yeah. This is set in 1974, the middle section of the book. Johnny's come to London. He's got rather interested in a young man called Ivan. In fact, he's very very keen on him. But Ivan's rather a slippery character and keeps eluding him. And there are little hints of what Ivan might actually be getting up to. But Johnny's been taken up by a lesbian couple, Francesca, who's very posh, and her girlfriend, Una, who works in the cosmetics department at Phoenix. He's tried to go once to a gay, his first gay club with Ivan, but it's, uh, this is set in the early part of 1974 when the three-day week were obtained and there were frequent power cuts and so on, so the club had had to close. It's a club in Earl's Court called the Solly Sombra. They've had a... Chinese meal in uh, Soho, and then they've jumped in a cab. This is it, Francesca shouted to the driver, and they stopped at a narrow white building on the Earl's Court Road. A small queue had formed outside, and there was a certain defiance in showing so plainly where they were going. The cabbie looked out warily. 
You don't want to go in there, love, he said to Una. It's a puff's place. Yes, we do, said Una. <laughs> Francesca paid him and took the change in full and flapped her hand in front of her face when he drove off in a loud fart of diesel fumes. Ivan was coming down the other way from the tube station, his duffel coat unbuttoned and the long fringe of his woolen scarf bobbing like a sporran between his thighs. Darling, said Francesca, so that Johnny didn't know where he was after all the mean things she said about him earlier. Ivan kissed the two girls, dodged a kiss with Johnny by butting his head against the lapel of his coat. Johnny felt the quick squeeze of tension, was anxious and lustful, watching Ivan unwind his scarf, and was drunk enough to put his arm round his shoulders and leave it there. He seemed as drunk as they were, and engaged with the girls more than with the friend who was loosely holding him. "'Here we all are, then,' said Francesca, as they edged a yard closer to the door. She winced at Johnny. "'Sorry about this hideous wait.' They went into a narrow space inside the door, music audible now, swing doors beyond like a cinema, and a glimpse when they opened of the bare room at the start of a party. The large man in a bomber jacket glanced sceptically at the girls. "'You know this is a gay club,' he said. "'We've been here thousands of times,' said Francesca, looking wanly past him. "'So you're lesbians, are you?' he said. "'Don't be vulgar,' said Francesca. <laughs> "'How are you going to prove it?' said the man. Francesca sighed and looked away, as if dealing with this kind of person were a quite new indignity. Then Una, with a hint of a smile on her large, flawless face, pulled her towards her, and with a tilt of the head, started kissing her with a steady pushing and chewing motion, which Francesca, while taking no active part, made no effort to prevent. Johnny giggled in amazement and felt a sudden knot of excitement that he and Ivan might be made to do the same thing. <laughs> whoa, whoa, said the bouncer, but it took him another ten seconds to separate them. He looked Johnny and Ivan up and down. Right you are, gentlemen, he said, and unhitched the rope for them all. It turned out you had to be a member. Francesca claimed she was, but this time couldn't prove it, so they all had to sign a list and give their address, which made Johnny uneasy. He imagined them getting in touch with his aunt, and he put a different number in the street. It cost 50p each. And of course you get your meal, said the little Irish boy in the lit cubbyhole. Then it was 10p to leave your coat. Shall we put ours together, said Johnny, save money? But Ivan said, no, it's okay. You know, they go in, they have a drink. Johnny goes off to get them another drink, and they, they, he returns. When Johnny got back to the table, a, a fat middle-aged man with a tray was hovering there. It's your salads, he said, and started to unload little bowls among the bottles and glasses. Oh, God, said Francesca. I'm not hungry, said Ivan. It's all free. It comes with your membership, said the man, smiling firmly. We've already eaten, said Francesca. It's just your salads, he said, as if a salad were a medicine, and with the air of someone used to resistance for all his pleasantness, you've got to have them. He put down four forks wrapped in paper napkins. Johnny peered into the bowls, which each contained a bit of iceberg lettuce, a ring of tomato, and, almost hidden, unnameable, a glistening square of meat. He sat down when the man moved on to the next table and unwrapped a fork. I didn't know we got this, he said. Don't eat it, said Una. No, said Johnny. It's the licensing law, said Ivan. They have to serve a meal. This seemed to Johnny both absurd and quite fortunate. He was more hungry now than he'd been before dinner, and food was here, the shameful stopgap of the boozing student. Well, doesn't look too bad. And with the others gazing at him and then thinking it better to resume their conversation, 
he ate his lettuce and tomato, there was no dressing on it, and popped in the pink-grey, tongue-sized piece of meat, which he chewed uncertainly, thinking it was probably ham, pre-packed, sweaty, and with a knot of gristle in it that he had to bring out behind his hand and hide in the bowl under his screwed-up napkin. It was dismaying and connected in a momentary violence of image with the glazed, squashed ducks in the Chinese restaurant earlier. Sometimes meat disgusted him. He took a swig from his cold beer bottle. Ivan raised an eyebrow into his fringe and gestured to his own bowl. Have mine, he said. No thanks, said Johnny. Or, well, actually, and switching the two bowls, he ate Ivan's salad too. It only took a minute, smiling defiantly as he chewed and thought of other things of Ivan's he'd like. And when that was done, the thing with the force now of some future anecdote, he pulled Una's salad towards him and <laughs> polished it off. He rested. He, he felt some natural deference as he looked at Francesca. Then he smirked and she said, What? Oh, go on, waving her hand over the bowl as she turned her head in mingled amusement and disgust. <laughs> That's it for this episode. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast to keep up with the latest hot topics and big thinkers. For more information on what's going on at our venues, visit southbankcentre.co.uk or look us up on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. You can find all our podcast channels if you search for Southbank Centre on iTunes or wherever you go to get your podcasts. <laughs>